with any of this. So the tear-off is the entire half thing, so it makes it easier for you to tear it off, So, as opposed to creating your own fold line. So, Hey, let's pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word this morning. We believe, Jesus, uh, in your Holy Spirit. And we believe this moment, as is true in every moment, uh, that we don't simply live in a physical world, but we live in a world that also is invisible and spiritual, that touches deep parts of us, and that comes from you. We know that we can experience you, God, in a significant way. So we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit of Jesus is saying to each one of us this morning. And not only that, would you give us the wisdom and the courage and the grace to take whatever steps we sense you're telling us to take that leads us to wholeness and life and joy, and courage, and peace, and forgiveness, because that's the kind of people you are able to turn us into. So we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, you, I, think you, I think I've used some of these before in a sermon, but I want to use them again because they're, they're good. Some, you, some of you may not have seen these. So when life is good, some of you may have these kind of posters on your wall. All right, here's the first one. Uh, attitude. A consistent positive mental attitude is a force that enables the beholder to overcome even the deepest of hindrances. Once you get past the sentence, you feel like a little bit encouraged. Next one. If you can dream it, you can become it. Next one. Courage is the resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. All right, last one on this part. Obstacles are those frightful things you see when you take your eyes off the goal. So these inspirational, motivational posters uh, that maybe some of you have on the walls of your office room or whatever. Okay, now here's the next set. Here's when life is not so good. I guess none of you have any of these posters on your wall. Challenges. I expected times like these, but never thought they'd be so bad, so long, and so frequent. All right, next one. Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. All right, next one. There's a few more of these. Pain is just weakness leaving the body. Sometimes your spirit tags along with it. All right, you can actually buy these online, by the way. Obstacles, some things cannot be overcome with determination and a positive attitude. All right, next one. Despair, it's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. All right, next one. Depression, some days you wake up feeling great, full of freedom and possibility, but you haven't had one of those days in a long time, maybe ever. All right, last one, we hit despair again. After you did everything you could, tried everything you can. What hurts the most is when someone tells you, you tried your best, All right? So what do you do with those? What do you do with the despair? What do you do with mistakes? What do you do with disappointment? Because we tend to think, especially as church-going people, the Christian life, at least we thought we've been told, is about victory and joy and overcoming obstacles and having a positive attitude to overcome the obstacles. But if you are honest, and if I'm honest, sometimes things like mistakes, desperation, despair, disappointment, we see that in our hearts. Maybe in large degrees at certain times, maybe in small degrees, but we see that, and we're not quite sure if maybe we're missing it somehow, because we thought Christianity was supposed to be all about 
Woohoo! But we're experiencing kind of an Eeyore kind of life. And like one Christian writer many years ago said, you start wondering if you have a hold of the wrong end of the stick. Like, do I really, am I not getting it, or is Christianity a sham? Because what do you do with those things? What do you do with the disappointment you have in life? What do you do when your finances fall apart, when there's an illness or a death to someone you love? What do you do when there's a relationship that breaks apart that you thought was going to be a lifelong thing? What do you do with a wayward son or daughter? What do you do with an estranged relationship with mom or dad or brother or sister? What do you do? Do you just put on a positive smile and pretend that it's better than you know that you feel? Is it all that? What what I'm doing the the next few weeks is what I'm just going to call kind of Exodus DNA. Kind of this is the mindset, not just of Exodus, but I think the mindset we should have as followers of Jesus. So we're going to look at what do you do with those things and where do you where does God meet us in those moments? Or do we have to clean those we have to clean those moments up and plaster all the good posters on the wall of our heart before God will even meet us? Because what do we do with those other posters that we really don't want anybody else to see because that's how we feel? So how do we bring these to Jesus? Early on in the ministry of Jesus in, in Mark, Matthew chapter 4, go to this next slide because this is going to be the overarching passage we're going to talk about. This describes the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. So he's 33-ish. We don't know exactly. Then his upbringing as a carpenter. Um, God had signaled through Jesus being baptized and Jesus had been tested in the wilderness, different things. God had signaled it's time now for Jesus to step out into his ministry and to step out declaring what the mission of God is, to reconnect people back with God through, through himself, through devoted friendship with him. And this describes, this is what he started doing. This is kind of the opening scene of the movie, so to speak, if you get past Bethlehem and those kind of things. This is the opening scene of his ministry movie. Jesus went throughout Galilee. That's the northern part of Israel. The southern part is where Jerusalem is. The northern part is where Jesus grew up. Jesus went throughout Galilee, Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, kingdom of God, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So it's interesting that his teaching and his preaching is woven together very closely with his healing. So his ministry wasn't just teaching. It wasn't just teaching us how to be good people, how to be moral people, how to get into heaven after we die. His teaching also was about about your and my wholeness, about our healing, about fullness of joy in life. So that's the so he's doing this. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's healing. Every day is taking us among the people. And a question like that says, "Who are the people here?" Well, the people that he interacts with throughout the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—those are the four books that are kind of the biography of the life of Jesus, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's it's all basically an account of Jesus' interaction with the people, and the people are no different than the people here. They're ordinary people. So how do we, as the people, how do we interact with Jesus? How does he interact with us? And what kind of situation is necessary for that kind of interaction where Jesus actually touches us, even in our hardest moments? So what I want to do is look at four different stories from the Gospels about people who had bad poster days, actually bad poster lives, and about how Jesus 
touched them, how they approached Jesus, how Jesus approached them. All right. So first one, here we go. First one is a man with leprosy. This is in Matthew chapter eight. Now, I don't know what you know about leprosy. You may or may not know, but I'm guessing you will know it's not a positive thing. Um, mostly eradicated today through modern medicine, but leprosy, uh, disease of the skin, um, often fingertips would fall off, lose all sensation of touch. Um, they could be burning in a fire and wouldn't know because they can't feel. So all kinds of horrible things. But in those days, it was even worse because it was uh, thought to be communicable. And so they were isolated in their own little, what they called leper colonies. So leper had no social life except with other lepers, uh, usually expunged from their own family once they had leprosy. Um, a horrible life of isolation, horrible life of despair. I mean, talk about the negative posters on the heart of, that, of a leper. They were all over the place. Isolation, despair, hopelessness, because they were in a hopeless situation. They were, de they were destined to beg. That was their life, was begging. They looked hideous, never touched by anybody else because you don't touch lepers. There was actually, according to the Pharisees, there was this six-foot rule. You had to stay with at least six feet away from a leper, and a leper had to stay six feet away from you. As a matter of fact, if I'm a leper and I'm on a road or somewhere and I hear normal people coming, I was required kind of by the Pharisaical law, to yell out, unclean, unclean. In other words, don't come close to me, I'm unclean. So talk about, think about the heart of a leper at this point. <laughs> Isolation, rejection, despair, disappointment, about everything negative piled into it. Plus, it was thought to be a curse from God. So can, you could even see the leper wondering, what, what did I do to deserve this? Maybe not unlike some things maybe you're wrestling with now, like some negative stuff in your life that you wondered, did I, did I bring this on? Because we, kind of, we kind of think sometimes God is this tit-for-tat God that if we're suffering, it must be because we did something wrong, which is not the heart of God. So this is the leper's life. And the Bible tells us in, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, and Jesus healed more than one leper, a different story. But the Bible tells us the leper came to Jesus and fell at his feet. So the leper falls on, an, on his knees in front of Jesus in clear violation of the six-foot rule. And you know what Jesus did not do? And this, this just hit me just lately when I was reading this passage. You know what he didn't do? He didn't go, he didn't back away. He didn't back away thinking, oh, I can't really, uh, unclean, dirty, I could catch this. He didn't back away. You, whatever you bring to Jesus, he doesn't back away from you. He doesn't like, whoa. All right, he didn't back away. And the leper simply said to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So Jesus already is violating one rule because he gets let the guy come within six feet and didn't back away. And then Jesus does what I call the religious technical foul. He touches the leper. It says Jesus reached out and touched the man. And Jesus didn't have to do that. He could, have, he could have healed the guy from backing away and saying, whammo, zammo, healed, or whatever, you know. He could have healed the man that way, but he touched the man. He's making a point. There's making a point. And he says the man was healed instantly. Um, and can you imagine how 
that guy's heart, that leprous man's heart, how things all of a sudden changed because he was touched by Jesus. Despair, disappointment. Now, life doesn't come, become super-duper overnight, but that's a pretty big change because he falls at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, in his love and compassion, touches the man, heals him. All right, next story. Next story is about a religious leader and his dead daughter. This man's name is Jairus. Uh, we don't know a whole lot more about him except he was a religious leader in his community. We do know that his peers, other religious leaders and other synagogues, which were the local places of assembly for Jews, we do know they weren't real fond of Jesus. So this man Jairus had peers, and maybe he himself was not real fond of Jesus because Jesus was kind of messing up the religious status quo and exposing some of these leaders as being re religious shams and arrogant people. They didn't like what he was doing. But this particular religious leader had a daughter who had just died. So you can see already, to some degree, his desperation overcomes any kind of predisposition to be standoffish to Jesus. And it says, he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus, falls at his feet, and he says to Jesus, my daughter has just died. Basically, can you do anything? Can you do something? Jairus asking in a way that he knew Jesus had power to do something. So the daughter's already dead. Now, I, I don't know. I don't think, but maybe. I, I don't think anybody here has lost a child. Um, I know some people who have, and I cannot imagine what that pain must be like. I mean, it, it makes the negative posters on that we saw seem kind of trite. But you can imagine this man's heaviness, pain, blackness, darkness, sleepless nights, whatever. And he's bringing this to Jesus. So Jesus goes to with Jairus to his house. And again, Jesus could have healed at the distance. He did that at times. So some, it's always good to ask, why is he doing this now? What's Because sometimes he'll say your faith is, you know, healed you, go on home. This time he goes to his house, he gets in the house, and there's all kinds of mourning and crying going on because the, the child is dead. So there's people crying and mourning, and the, the culture in Jewish world then and even in Mideast culture now is you mourn loudly. And Jesus says, kind of bold, kind of gutsy, Jesus says to the mourners, get out. The child's not dead, she's just sleeping. Jesus knew she was dead. He was talking about sleeping in a larger spiritual sense. And it said the people laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. And indirectly, they're laughing with Jairus because Jairus is standing right with him. They laughed at him. They said, no, she's dead. She's dead. So Jesus pushes through kind of the mockery. So does Jairus with him. They go upstairs. Jesus touches the girl, which again is another technical foul because Jewish, Jewish, good Jewish people don't touch dead bodies. That's another unclean thing to do. Jesus violates a rule again, touches this dead body. The girl gets up. She's alive. So transformation, not just in the girl, but com consider what the father's heart would have done. Backflips, fireworks, whatever. Because Jesus met this man in his darkest moment. All right, next one. A demonized daughter of a Gentile woman. Let me explain why these phrases are up here. Demonized. In the Bible, we often think, we always talk about, we often hear people talk about demon possession. But the term in the Bible really is better stated as demonized. So, whereas a demon is harassing or torturing or tormenting. 
so the, the, the concept of demon possession is not necessarily a biblical concept. It's more of demonized, like harassed. It's still awful, still awful, and still has a lot of repercussions to that. So this woman has a daughter who is being tormented. She even says to Jesus, a demon is tormenting my daughter. And again, those of you who are parents, and those of you who are not parents can imagine what that must be like to see as a parent your child being tormented. I mean, it makes bullying in junior high school seem like a small thing. Not that that's not a horrible thing, but we're talking bullying to like the nth degree from a supernatural being who has nothing but destruction for this little girl in mind. So this, and not only is it the girl demonized, the Bible tells it's a Gentile woman. Well, the Gentiles meant they weren't Jews. And Jews were taught from early on that they were the special people. Jesus even told the disciples, when you go out with the gospel, go to the Jewish people, not to the Gentiles. And you might think at first blank, well, was Jesus being racist here? No, because Jesus knew exactly what was going to be happening next. He knew it was Jewish people first, then to the Gentiles. So this Gentile woman, this unclean woman, who thought she, who had been told her whole life she has no association with the Jews, but yet there's this one Jew, Jesus, she's heard about, that may be able to do something. This Gentile woman comes to Jesus and says, my daughter's being harassed, tortured by a demon. Can you help her? And the disciples, Jesus' own disciples, Paul, Peter, those, you know, they tell the woman, go away. Go away. Because she was a Gentile. She's an outsider. And the woman kind of persists. She says, no, but I, I, I want to know if Jesus can do something. And then Jesus even makes some comment based on, I was called to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. And he's not putting this woman off. What he's doing is he sh- he's, doing, he's doing something so the disciples see what's going to happen next. Because he's just mimicking what they've been taught their whole life. We don't treat the Jews well. As a matter of fact, the Bible, Jesus actually says, uh, talks about, do- you know, they were called Gentile dogs. And you might first read that and think, wow, that's like Jesus using a really bad word for a racial epitaph. That's not, what he was doing was he was showing the disciples, I'm going to break this, I'm going to blow this up right here in front of you. And the woman, it says, she fell at Jesus' feet, pleading from before, crying out. She's crying out to Jesus, basically saying, but you could do something. And Jesus, Jesus looks at this Gentile woman on her knees in front of him, and he says to his disciples, I've never seen this kind of faith even among my own people, the Jews. He's basically saying, this is all-star kind of faith. This is the kind of relationship God wants with people. And, and immediately her daughter's healed. Last one. And this one, if you've been in Exodus at all, you've heard me talk about this is Bartimaeus, is perhaps one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, one of my top hundred stories, actually. One of my top ten, actually. But Bartimaeus is a blind man. And uh, in those days, as is now, blindness is a horrible, horrible thing. But in those days, there weren't the extra scaffolding around blindness to help them out. There was no Braille. There was no school for the blind. Blind people didn't have jobs. Their lot in life was begging. Get up in the morning, beg, find food, find a place to sleep, go to bed. Get up the next morning, beg. 
And every day, you know, rinse, repeat, do it again, do it again. That was their life. Nothing to look forward to in life was their blindness. Despair, difficulty, hopelessness was part of what their lives were all about. So this particular man, Bartimaeus, and we're told in the gospel he's actually with somebody else who's not named. We don't know that. Probably somebody he begged with on a regular basis. Maybe they were buddies. And it says Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was coming. He had heard about Jesus, but he heard Jesus was down the pathway or coming down, you know, Lincoln Street or whatever. Wherever Jesus was doing, this guy knew Jesus was coming nearby. And he it said the Bible said that Bartimaeus yelled out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David was a term used for the Messiah. So he was calling because he was basically saying, you're the one. Will you have mercy on me? Were you the one? And he probably yelled at the top of his lungs. I didn't do that there because I didn't want you to fall back in your chairs. But you can imagine the degree to which he yelled from the bottom of his heart at the top of his lungs. Because hopelessness, despair, desperation was so powerful in him, he didn't care what people thought about him, which we all do. We tend to care what people think about us. He doesn't care. Goes way out of the lines of what's appropriate. And the people around him, the crowd around him, turn to Barnabas, and they basically say, shut up, be quiet, you're, you're breaking protocol. But Barnabas was not to be silenced because, again, his desperation and his hope were so strong, nothing was going to stop him. And it said he yelled even louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And it said Jesus heard or became aware and jesus said hey bring him over to me well then what i think was almost funny the very crowd around him that had just told him to shut up now they're like oh, oh he's calling you he's calling you come on come on come on they, they changed their demeanor all of a sudden he's calling you come over here to jesus and then and then jesus asked bartimaeus and every time i read this passage and i think about this it always seems to kind of catch me off guard Jesus asked Bartimaeus what I think is one of the dumbest questions at first glance Jesus asked anybody. Because what he asked Bartimaeus is, what do you want me to do for you? And I tell people I hate this word, but I'm going to use it. Duh, Jesus. What do you think he wants you to do for him? He's blind. What do you think he wants? Dinner? Coins? And so you think, okay, is Jesus mocking him? No, he's not mocking him. Is Jesus dumb? Is he just stupid? He isn't he's un, socially unaware that this guy is blind? No, of course not. What Jesus is doing, which I think he does with us, sometimes he wants us to verbalize to him what our need is. God knows every need you have. He knows every emotional need, financial need, relational need. He knows every single need you have. He knows every, every wound you have. He knows every brokenness you're experiencing. He knows your secrets. He knows the secret places where you're chained. He doesn't need you to inform him of something he doesn't know. But what he's doing here is he wants us to tell him what we need. And there's something about that that seems to catalyze the action of God in our lives. That he hasn't. Bartimaeus verbalized, and Bartimaeus simply says, my rabbi, my teacher, I want to see. And it says, Jesus touched him again, violating, you don't touch blind people, they're cursed from God. Jesus touches both these men and their sight's restored. 
Now, I, just want, I don't want to just tell those four stories, and there's tons more stories in the New Testament. There's a story of the woman who reached out and grabbed Jesus' robe because she had this problem with blood for 12 years, couldn't get, couldn't get healed. She reached out and touched his robe and experienced healing. There's a story about the men who so much want to get their, their lame friend into Jesus, into this crowded house, they cut a, seat, uh, a hole in the ceiling and dropped him down in. There's all kinds of stories of these people who were desperate and really wanted to see what God could do in their, in their life, if they could get close to Jesus. But I'm going to look at four things that characterize all these four lives that I'm suggesting that how do we embrace these attitudes and mindsets as part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. All right? First word is this. Uh, they were all, all four of these people were desperate. Now, usually desperate is not a word we use in positive lingo. Um, if when I was, I didn't get married until I was 29, or was I 30? I can't remember how old I was, 30, 30. But up until that point, there were times where somebody might say, well, he's kind of desperate to get married. It's not a positive thing. I mean, if, if somebody says that about you, it's not positive, all right? So we tend to think desperate is not a positive quality, or at least not desirable, or at least somehow flawed. But yet these people were all desperate for the touch, for the interaction with Jesus. So maybe desperate when you just flip the definition, not the definition, flip our perception of the definition upside down and make it a strength and not a weakness. Because it seems like it was the desperate people who interacted with Jesus in the New Testament and the desperate people who interacted with God in the Old Testament that seemed to be the ones that has faith and their hearts and their spirits expanded and there was wholeness and strengthen them so maybe desperation toward god desperation toward wholeness of life and joy and peace maybe that is not a bad thing actually it's not a bad thing maybe it's a real positive quality to be desperate for god in your life second thing they were all hopeful everyone the woman with the demonized daughter jairus whose uh, daughter had died the leprous man the blind man, and you could throw in all kinds of other people in the Gospels. They were hopeful. They, they had l tried other things. They had gone to other venues probably for healing or hope, but they had this sense that this guy, Jesus, he is the one, and maybe he is the only one who can do for me what I desperately need. They were hopeful. Not just wishful thinking. It was like this laser-focused hope. All four of these people were that way. Next one. This is the one I think is hardest for all of us approaching. They were unashamed. Let's rewind here a little bit. The leprous man threw himself on his knees in front of Jesus. Well, falling on your, being on your knees in front of and, and being on your knees in front of somebody right away feels a little bit demeaning. It's like, come on, don't, don't be so degrading of yourself. That's how we think about those kind of things. Like it feels so needy, so desperate. But he was unashamed. Then you think about the woman who had a demonized daughter. She's a Gentile. She wasn't supposed to even go to Jesus. She kind of, she didn't, even though they told her, stop it, go away. She didn't let the opinions of others dictate how she was going to approach Jesus. Think about Bartimaeus. He didn't care. People told him to shut up. You're being out of protocol. That's not how it's supposed to be relating to 
Jesus. He didn't care about breaking protocol. He didn't care about the opinion. Jairus didn't care about the people that were laughing at him and Jesus as they went upstairs to go raise his daughter from the dead. I wonder in my life or maybe in your life, how much our fear of the opinions of other people stifle us from approaching Jesus in the way we really want to. Because we're afraid that we're going to be perceived as being a little bit out there, a little bit, you know, that's not really proper. That's not how we do things in church. That's not how we do things in our spiritual life. And I'm not saying this is the measure of all things, but I grew up, and you've heard me say this before, I grew up in a church where anybody raising hands in worship was kind of like, oh, come on. What's wrong with you? Overly emotional, right? Maybe some of you think that now, and that's okay. And, and then I got to the point where I realized, okay, the only reason the Bible talks about raising your hands, and, and this is not a guilt trip on raising your hands. That's your, everybody has to figure out your own journey on that and understand Scripture. But the Bible talks about, I will raise my hands to you. I will kneel to you. It talks about all these body postures that sometimes feel awkward for all of us. But I got to the point where I realized, okay, if I'm – feel like I want to do this, but I'm not doing this because I'm afraid what the person next to me is going to think. And I've been there. I'm still, if I'm in a church service with one of my brothers, I'm not sure I'm too quick to raise my hands because that's not their church culture. It's not wrong. It's not better. But I don't want them to think I'm weird. So this unashamed when we approach Jesus, again, please, I'm, uh, this is not a mantra about raising your hands in worship, but it's just an illustration there. But there's times where we we feel like there's this protocol of how we should approach Jesus, this proper way. But these people didn't care. The woman who grabbed Jesus' robe didn't care. The guys who cut the hole in the ceiling, they didn't care. We hope they paid for the repairs, but they didn't care if they were being thought of as negatively by other people, even other religious people. So pushing through the fear of the opinion of others is a big deal about how we approach Jesus. And it's a journey for all of us. All right, last one. The four things all these people embodied was they were all determined. I mean, the the leprous man is determined enough that he doesn't care about any rules anymore. He throws himself down at the feet of Jesus. It'd be interesting to kind of see the scene. Like, did he all of a sudden, did he dash over there? My guess is he didn't He didn't walk over there slowly and then kind of sneak a fall in. He probably dashed over there, determination. The woman who had the demonized daughter, she was a Gentile. She Did she kind of walk over? To, my guess is she got there quickly and just was, probably had a determination of spirit, an aggressiveness of spirit that we would all think, whoa, back off, lady. But she was not going to be stopped. You have the man who, Jairus, who, he goes to Jesus, he falls at his feet. Determination, Jesus, you need to do something. My daughter's dead. And then Bartimaeus, his determination of bottom of his lungs, top of his voice, he's screaming out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, I want your attention. And what I say to people is, and what I think is true of the Bible, all these stories and many others, is these people figured out where Jesus was and they got in his way. There's a determination to get in the way of Jesus. Illustration. Uh, when I was dating my wife um, in college, she was in college, I was a much older person. 
Um, there were times she wasn't quite convinced she wanted to date me, I guess I'll say it that way. We, you know, it was kind of a, we didn't know how to define it. But I thought I could help matters, but I, I knew what her schedule was like. I kind of knew what her class schedule was like. I knew where she liked to study, which part of the library. One time it was the graduate school library at Wheaton College. I knew those things, and I would just coincidentally show up there. Oh, hey, hey, hey. How you doing, Kathy? What are you doing here? Oh, I just thought I'd study here. Or I just happened to be driving by where I knew she'd be walking to go from point A to point B on campus at that time of day because I knew her class schedule. Oh, hey, hey, I just happened to be, hey, Kathy, just happened to be coincidentally. <laughs> You've all done that, I'm guessing, maybe, maybe not. But you know what? I was, I was determined to get in her way. I tried to figure out where is she going to be, and it could be a little bit probably irritating in that kind of situation. I wanted to get in her way. And you might think, well, how do I get in the way of Jesus? Well, Jesus shows up in corporate worship. He shows up in your private worship. He shows up when you pray. He shows up when you read your Bible. He shows up in communion. He shows up in all kinds of places. So you put yourself, and that's why, to some degree, that's why we encourage people to read the Bible on a regular basis on your own and to pray on your own because you're putting yourself in the way of Jesus where he can talk to you. He can touch you. That's why we do those things. We don't do it to earn points with God. We do ourse- that because we're trying to put ourselves in the pathway of Jesus. And if like Bartimaeus or these people who threw themselves in front of him and blocked him from even walking further, maybe that kind of determination is the very thing Jesus loves to see in us toward him, toward what he can do in our lives. Because there was this laser focus these people had about Jesus. They, weren't, they didn't have a, I can take it or leave it, Jesus, and I hope you... Jesus, I hope if you're in the right mood, you might be able to do something. No, they were like, Jesus, I need your attention. I want to talk to you. So they were unashamed. They were hopeful. They were desperate. They were determined. Now, let's, let's look at Jesus and how he approaches those kind of people. And there's just two things I'll say. One, this is true about Jesus throughout many stories, but especially he's compassionate. There's nothing you've done or I've done or are doing that put yourself beyond the reach of the compassion of Jesus in your life. You might think so. I once asked a professor at the School of Education that I knew. He's retired. He's not there anymore. I asked him to come to church one time. This was years ago at another church in town. And his response was, "Um, you don't want me to do that because once I walk into your building, I'm afraid the building would collapse around me because you don't know the things I've done in that. He actually verbalized it that way. Now, I'm sure he didn't think the building would literally collapse. But what he's saying is, I think the things I've done in my life are outside of the love of God. I've put myself way out of bounds. But these people and other people throughout Scripture, some of the horrible people in the Bible, even like prostitutes and tax collectors Jesus interacted with, none of them were beyond the reach of the love of Jesus. So there's nothing you've done absolutely nothing you've done or are doing that puts you outside of the touch of the, the reach of Jesus. Second thing, though, is this. Jesus is powerful. He's not just compassionate. He's powerful. He has power to, in, to bring about incredible change in your life and my life. Whether it's this leprous man raising the dead, Jesus has power for transformation. 
And you might think, well, why doesn't he do all that today? Jesus does a lot of transformation. Now, we don't see the raising of the dead, and that's a whole other conversation. But Jesus can heal things inside all of you that you think are beyond the healing touch of Jesus. I've shared this before. I won't tell the whole story, but when I was in seminary, one of my struggles was pornography. And again, you might think you're in seminary, so I'm going to be a pastor, and you struggle with pornography. Yes, that's awful, I know. I was, self-condemnation was like, I was, I was an expert at self-condemnation at that point. But I remember thinking, I don't know, I didn't think this consciously, but I know I was thinking this. I think this is just going to be my lot in life, because I don't know, I've asked Jesus to change this, and it hasn't happened. And I got to the point where I thought, maybe this is beyond his power. Or his love, or his attention, or both. But then God did some pretty incredible things through a period of time where change happened and transformation happened and wholeness and healing happened. Cause I re- and I realized there's nothing. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's, a, not a, that's a big deal. And there's bigger deals, you know, people that have done horrible, horrible things, even a larger degree. There's nothing outside of the touch of Jesus, which is compassion, or his power in your life. So I'll end with this question that Jesus asked, and just, if you've been to Exodus, I've probably put this up on the screen twice a year at least, but I think it's a question that's good to keep asking yourself as we're all in different phases of life, we're all in different parts of our story. If Jesus were to come to you in your dorm room, in your apartment, in your house, in your car, while you're sitting at Starbucks drinking coffee by yourself, and he actually sat across you and you said, hey, what do you want me to do for you? Because really what he's asking is, what is it inside of you, what is it that you need healing and hope that you know you cannot do of your own human ability? It's not about your intelligence. It's not about your willpower. Maybe you've tried. Maybe you've tried to solve this issue, solve this problem. Willpower yourself to be a better person. Maybe you've thought about having a positive attitude like one of the posters says, positive mental attitude. And that's not changing the situation for you. Or maybe it's a situation, like I said, maybe it's a wayward son or daughter, mother, father, husband, you know, whatever. Jesus may not change that situation, but he has absolute power and compassion to change how you're working through that. He has absolute power and absolute compassion to give you peace and joy, even in the most horrible situation. So maybe your prayer is simply, God, I need peace about this situation. I can't control it. I can't control this person or that person or this person. I can't control it. And I'm watching things fall apart around me, but I want peace, Jesus. I want joy. You told me I could have peace and joy in the midst of all the problems in the world. So I'm asking you for that, Jesus. Because when he asks you that question, what he wants to know is, what is it you really, what is it the deepest part of your heart you need? What do you want me to do that I can do for you if you ask me? Just a question I'll ask you to, whether you're driving this week in your car or walking by yourself, what would you say to Jesus? And maybe that's your prayer this week. Maybe simply you say, Jesus, this is what I want. I know it sounds kind of bold and I don't want it to sound bossy, but this is what I want. Because I think you can do that in my life. A- and I think when we become the kind of determined, unashamed, hopeful, laser focused I'm going to ask I'm going to talk to Jesus about my needs we become those kind of people I think the sky's the limit of how much 
you will see the Holy Spirit grow inside of you. But it seems like those are the people that kind of make what I would call the the New Testament all-star team as well as the Old Testament all-star team. They were desperate, determined, they were hopeful, they were unashamed. Those are strong qualities, not weak qualities. So let me pray, and then we'll take communion this morning. Jesus, my, my prayer for me and my prayer for every um, one of these sisters and brothers of mine here this morning is that we be kind the kind, kind of people that, like the Bible says, we can approach the th- throne of grace with boldness. We want to be the kind of people who can approach your throne of grace with boldness. Because then your word goes on to say, because there you help us in our time of need. God, would you break away the timidity in us that's often fostered by fear or doubt or anxiety, the timidity that we don't want to go to you directly. We don't want to go to you boldly. So God, I pray for boldness among us to go to you boldly and for confidence that when we go to you boldly, you don't walk away. You're not apathetic. That you, the Bible says, you help us in our time of need. So I pray that you would do that transformation in all of our hearts. Give us boldness to approach you and ask for what we need. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Here's how we, we finish at Exodus every Sunday. We take communion. And like I said earlier, kind of like uh, baptism as well as communion, there's nothing magical that happens here. I mean, all, this isn't like power juice and power bread. But Jesus told us to do this. I think something mystical goes on when you take communion. Um, but when we take the body, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And you, he says, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, remember, I'd say in this case, he'd say, remember all these stories of these people, how I interact with them. Remember what I can do for you if you approach me that way. So even as you take this this morning, and I'll explain how we do it in a second. As you take this morning, you're getting in the way of Jesus. So even as you stand in line or as you take it, maybe you're just internally whispering a prayer, Jesus, this is what I need. This is what I want you to do for me. This is a place where you meet Jesus in that sense. Here's how we do it at Exodus. Jeremy is going to come on up here, and he'll lead us in a few more songs at the end. And then as soon as we start singing, you're welcome to come up for communion. We don't dismiss our rows. Just come up as you feel led. We don't try to figure out who's up and down and ask you why not or whatever. But uh, mo- and we'll, they'll be right here in the front aisle. Uh, offer you the bread. You tear off the piece. Offer you the cup. And we just dip it in the cup here, and then you eat it. Um, we just dip it in the cup. This is how we do it. It's not a big deal either way. Most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to your seats. But uh, it's up to you how you want to do that. So um, let me pray, and then we'll take. So Jeremy, come on up and get, get us ready to sing here. Jesus, we are, uh, we're grateful, not simply for the stories of how you touched and healed broken people, but we're grateful because when you went to the cross, willingly and obediently and were killed, crucified, and then rose again, 
it became the evidence and the source of the power of healing that we all so desperately craved. And so thank you for what you did for us, and thank you what you do for us, and thank you what you will do for us because of your death and resurrection. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Your reigns in majesty, we will bow before His throne. We will worship Him in righteousness. We will worship Him alone. Lord of heaven. 
kind of get in your way this week. We want to get in your way every week, every day, but especially help us look for those times and places where we can get in your way. Because we know what you do when we get in your way is that you touch, you heal, you bless. So Jesus, whatever we have that we want to bring to you, whatever brokenness, big or small, whatever despair, big or small, whatever hope, big or small, would you help us even know from our own hearts what that is and then bring it to you to ask for your touch because we want to be people that are full of the life and power that comes from God which is what you said we can be we want to be people who are full of joy and courage and irrational love for other people we want to be those kind of people and we know we can't be that apart from your touch so would you touch us would you give us the courage to approach you and we ask this all in Christ's name Hey, thanks for coming. Help us out. We stack up chairs under the flag over there on the, if you're able to help us with the white chairs. So thanks for coming. Have a great day.